Uh, that is all in on this Tuesday night. Alex Wagner's tonight starts right now. Good evening, Alex. You don't think Trump just, don't think Trump just wanted to protect you who he loved so much? <laughs> I, I thought Ari's question there was great because it's such an, it's an impossible question to answer, right? What do you say as a lawyer? Like, oh, he's done hush money billions all the time. There's hundreds of them, Ari. I can't tell you about them. Exactly. Thank you, my friend, as yeah. always. And thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. The battle to be the standard bearer for the American far right has officially begun. Ron DeSanctis, did anyone ever hear of DeSanctis? DeSanctimonious. He was very, very bad on ethanol. He fought it all the way. And he also fought against Social Security. He wanted to decimate it. He wanted the minimum retirement age to be lifted to people that are 70 years old. He also voted to severely cut Medicare. I will not be cutting Medicare and I will not be cutting Social Security. Ron was a disciple of Paul Ryan who is a rhino loser who currently is destroying Fox and would constantly vote against entitlements. Ron reminds me a lot of Mitt Romney. Reminds me a lot of Mitt Romney, which is the most epic burn you can levy in today's GOP. That was Donald Trump in Iowa last night, taking aim at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ahead of the 2024 Republican presidential primary. He is, of course, not stopping there. Trump also had some truly unique things to say about his potential rival and his former vice president, Mike Pence. In an interview with reporters this week, Trump said this about Pence and the role he played on January 6th. Quote, had Mike Pence sent the votes back to the legislatures, they wouldn't have had a problem with January 6th. So in many ways, you can blame him for January 6th which is, wow, blame Mike Pence for January 6th. I did not think Trump had it in him, but okay. Now, while a lot of this may look like the traditional and unbridled character assassination that's basically a Trump calling card at this point, there happens to be something bigger going on underneath the surface. Trump has been saying all of this at the same time that he's been attempting to position himself as a leader in the Republican culture wars. If elected, Trump said he would end all federal funding to schools that taught critical race theory, schools that allowed transgender students to play on sports teams that match their gender identity, and to schools that teach inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content. Trump also said he would not give one penny to schools that require vaccinations for COVID-19, the development of which his administration fast-tracked. But anyway, so there's that. It's not as if attacking trans youth or race-conscious curriculums or COVID safety is, is exactly new for Trump. All of those things came under attack at one point or another during his administration. But what is new here is Trump's focus on all of this. He wasn't really campaigning on anti-CRT book bans until Ron DeSantis emerged as a political rival. And so what we have now is Donald Trump trying to out DeSantis Ron DeSantis, and in the process— move his own policy positions even further to the right. At the very same time, Ron DeSantis is on his own mission to out-Trump Donald Trump, and it's having a similar effect. Let me show you what I mean. This was Ron DeSantis back when he was a member of Congress talking about the issue of Russian aggression in Ukraine. When Putin sees he can gain an inch, he's apt to take a mile. And basically, if America's not going to give him any pushback, I think he's going to continue to try to expand Russian influence. If we had a, a policy which was firm, which armed Ukraine with defensive and offensive weapons so that they could defend themselves, I think Putin would make different calculations. If you had a Reagan-esque policy of, of strength, um, I think you'd see people like Putin not want to mess with us. 
That was then. But now, in his latest attempt to out-Trump Trump, DeSantis has come out against supporting Ukraine in its war against Putin's invasion. In response to a survey question from Fox News host Tucker Carlson, Ron DeSantis wrote, While the U.S. has many vital national interests, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Those comments from DeSantis have already started to draw criticism today from Republicans on Capitol Hill. Well, it's not a territorial dispute in the sense that any more than it would be a territorial dispute if the United States decided that it wanted to invade Canada or take over the Bahamas. Um, just because someone claims something doesn't mean it, it belongs to them. This is an invasion. Do you agree with him when he says that defending Ukraine isn't a national security interest for the United States? I would not agree with him on that. Any one of the individuals who has uh, an interest in working as the next president of the United States really needs to get a full briefing before they decide to to make up their minds on this particular issue. I just think that's a misunderstanding of the situation. Uh, this is not a territorial conflict, this war of aggression. I think Governor Florida has been a great governor, but uh, in my opinion, if you don't get Ukraine right, this is a chance to stop Putin before it gets to be a bigger war, and China's watching. Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn also felt the need to distance himself from DeSantis's comments. He told reporters, I'm disturbed by it. I think he's a smart guy. I want to find out more about it, but I hope he doesn't. I hope he feels like he doesn't need to take that Tucker Carlson line to be competitive in the primary. Trump and DeSantis are now pushing each other further and further right and pushing the consensus among Republican primary voters to the right as well. And it is only March of the year 2023. Joining us now are Jonathan Martin, Politico's Politics Bureau Chief and Senior Political Columnist, and Jen Psaki, former White House Press Secretary for President Biden. By the way, her new show, Inside with Jen Psaki, premieres this Sunday at 12 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. We are very excited for that, Jen, and I will start with you, my friend. Um, You can almost see the establishment wing of the Republican Party watch like its platform fly off into the air like a balloon that's been let go as they hear what Trump and DeSantis are now saying, specifically about major issues like, oh, I don't know, foreign policy. My question to you is, is like, is this is this how the Republican platform is now going to be shaped? And is it does it matter what anyone in Congress actually thinks? Is it is it really DeSantis and Trump who are going to determine where the goalposts lie on the field? Well, Congress still has the ability to pass legislation, right, and pass funding for Ukraine and things like that. That's important. But Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are currently the two leading contenders for their Republican nomination. And they have decided, I mean, Trump a long time ago decided this, that they are going to do America first, right? The Trump motto from when he ran, which means we don't want to get engaged in conflicts. We don't want to get engaged in peacemaking. We don't want to get engaged in foreign policy much at all. I mean, some of those clips you played, though, Alex, were from six years ago yeah. from Ron DeSantis. They weren't that long ago, which is so important to remember, but it is a repositioning of the current leaders of the Republican Party of who they want to be. And that is a pretty rapid shift as a, you know, in terms of political shifts from where the Republican Party, when John McCain or even Mitt Romney were leading it. I guess I wonder, um, Jonathan, whether they understand there's a general election that comes after you become the party nominee, because it seems like and let's speak more broadly than just foreign policy. But some of these positions that Trump and DeSantis are taking on culture war issues, social issues, issues about education and, quote unquote, parents rights. 
I mean, they do not poll well with the vast majority of Americans. And it seems like there's no clear path to actually winning a general election if you stake out these positions in primary season. Well, let me, let me take the broad question first. We saw in the midterms last year that a lot of Republicans learned all the wrong lessons from Donald Trump, which is to say that you don't have to ever face a general election uh, voter. You can forever live in a primary bubble, and Republicans learn the hard way. But that's not the case, Alex. I think on the more narrow issue of Ukraine, I think Trump and DeSantis, especially DeSantis, are chasing the voters more than they are actually leading them. Uh, Look, I think the polling data is pretty clear on this, that uh, as the months have gone on, more and more in the GOP base uh, have sort of grown uneasy about our continued uh, intervention on behalf of Ukrainians. And somebody like the governor of Florida sees that and does not want to get on the wrong side of the primary voters. And yes, that's what they're focused on right now is winning that primary first. And they're not thinking about the broader audience that's going to be deciding this election in the fall of 2024. But I guess I, I wonder, I mean, I, you're, you seem to be saying that the genesis of this is the base, that he's responding to the base. But I also wonder if there isn't a more sort of craven political calculation here, which is, you know, Ron DeSantis hears Donald Trump compare him to Mitt Romney. Ron DeSantis knows what he said as a congressman sure. six years ago, as sure. Jen points out, right, where, where he was not the general in the culture war that he would propose to right. be in right. this day and age. How much of this do you think is him trying to issue a preemptive salvo for the attacks that are going to come his way, courtesy yeah. of Trump? It's a good question. There's no question that DeSantis is is consumed with insulating himself uh, uh, on his MAGA flank, if you will. I won't even call it a right flank because I think those those phrases have kind of gotten all muddled uh, in the Trump era, what's right, what's left. But certainly he is fixated on guarding his MAGA flank. You see it obviously now on his stance about Ukraine. You see it with the folks he surrounds himself with, bringing some of the hardline members uh, of the House down to Palm Beach for his big donor retreat. Uh, social media influencers on the right, people he's cultivated uh, in Tallahassee, trying to make them allies. I think he's doing all that, Alex, because he does not want to give Trump any opening to attack him uh, on the kind of MAGA-style issues. The question is, is he hurting himself with the other wing of the party, right? Call it the Reagan wing. Yeah. That's exact. That's the exact. That's exactly the question. Right. As you shore up the base, you lose the general public. Um, you know, Jen, David Frum has a piece in The Atlantic that's a very like solid analysis analysis, I believe, mm-hmm. of the DeSantis pseudo candidacy. And he points this out, which I think a lot of people have missed in, in the focus on the culture war stuff. Mm-hmm. More dangerous than the unpopular positions DeSantis holds are the popular positions he does not hold. What is DeSantis's view on health care? He doesn't seem to have one. President Joe Biden has delivered cheap insulin to U.S. users. Good idea or not? Silence from DeSantis. There's no DeSantis jobs policy. He hardly speaks about inflation. Homelessness, the environment, nothing. Even on crime, DeSantis must avoid specifics because specifics might remind his audience that Florida's homicide numbers are worse than New York's or California's. I mean, that is something the White House is probably well aware of. Am I right? Salivating at the, you know, trumping at the bit. I have a lot of analogies there. I think, Alex, that's how he got here, though. Remember? I mean, he ran um, 
an effective communication strategy, basically on Twitter, and by giving a set of predetermined remarks where he was the strong man, where he was pounding his chest, right, about how much he wasn't going to abide by restrictions on COVID. The vaccine's terrible. We're, you know, I'm returning sanity here. You know, screw Disney. I mean, all of these things were him being the straw man. I mean, the strong man, like very strong guy. And so that's how he got here. That is not going to work through the course of a competitive primary. It shouldn't work. I don't think it will because people are going to ask him questions. He's going to have to debate. He's going to have to have positions. And certainly he will in a general election. But, you know, that strategy is probably why he's here today. Yeah, well, Jaimar, you write about um, the establishment sort of freaking out about a DeSantis candidacy. And I, yeah. I wonder if your sources give you any indication about whether their alarm bells that they're ringing, at least behind closed doors, are having any effect on the DeSantis campaign proper. Because he's meeting with wealthy donors. He certainly right. hears what's being said in other corners yes. of Congress, whether or not he's acting on any. I mean, do you think yeah. that he's aware of how much he may be compromising his own shot. And by the way, the Republican platform on whole, right? Because this stuff, as you point out, it is, it is, there's a very close relationship between Trump and DeSantis and the Republican base. And what they say shapes opinion in the party. And the last thing the establishment wants to be is at odds with the base. Yeah, and it's not just the the sort of challenge that he's going to have balancing the base of the party versus the general election. It's also within the party itself, Alex, because there's still a robust internationalist wing in the Republican Party. You played clips of a number of senators, certainly from that faction of the party. And this is an important point. The donor class of the party is overwhelmingly tilted toward sort of hawkish, interventionist, whatever you want to call them, that faction. So you can be assured that those folks noticed that comment that he made yesterday about his view of Ukraine, because it contradicts where a lot of the sort of money uh, folks in the party, the contributors are. And I'm telling you, he's going to hear from them in the months ahead, because I know from talking to some of them that they are not happy uh, where he is coming down on the Ukrainian issue, because their view of that issue is much more in line with the race. Reagan-Bush approach to national security politics. And it's going to be fascinating to see in the months to come what DeSantis does on this Ukrainian issue. Does he stick where he is now, grow even more isolationist, or try to sort of, you know, somewhat moderate his view uh, to appease the kind of donors who are not going to like it at all? I mean, Jen, how does the White House calibrate its response on the Ukraine issue, right? At once, you don't want to make this into, you know, you want to draw a contrast with the MAGA wing of the party, but you also don't want Ukraine to become a political football. So what's like, if you're in the White House right now, how are you managing this? Well, you also don't want it to become a political problem for Republicans in Congress who are inclined to support funding, right? Yes, it is true. The establishment Republicans, the donor class are all supporters of, you know, continuing to fund Ukraine. But it can be a narrow vote on these sorts of things. This is part of the reason why President Biden just went to Ukraine to shore up support, remind the public of how important that it, this is. And if there's a few wigglers in there in the Republican caucus who aren't going to support it because they feel like maybe they want to be in the Trump DeSantis swing, that's a challenge for them. So, but politically, if you get to a general election, Biden is going to talk about uh, values and who we are as a country. And part of that is standing up against dictators and authoritarians. That is a stronger argument, I think, in a general election. But he may have some shorter term challenges on continuing to get the funding through. 
I, there's just one quick question I have for you, Jmart, which is, you know, we haven't talked much about this since the show began 15 minutes ago. But if there is a Trump indictment, yeah. how does DeSantis react to that? Because he needs to court Trump voters, but he also needs to make clear that he's not the guy with criminal charges. Just real fast on what Jen was saying about the shorter term challenges. This is important. I think Trump and DeSantis coming out as sort of, um, you know, very dovish on Ukraine. It's most resonant in the House. The Senate's very hawkish. This could really shape GOP opinion in the House and create challenges for Biden on getting funding for Ukraine through the House this year. Uh, on the larger issue, uh, Alex, about Trump and the indictments, if you're on DeSantis, I don't think you take a swing at that pitch. I think you just let that go by because Trump's going to use that to fire up his core, to raise money off of it among small dollar givers. It's just not something that I think DeSantis wants to get at. If anything, I think it would be an oblique reference about focusing on the future and focusing on attacking Democrats rather than litigating the past. Beyond that kind of a vague reference, I can't see DeSantis or any of the other would-be GOP candidates taking that crack at Trump over indictments. Or maybe DeSantis will also just blame Mike Pence for January 6th. Who maybe. Knows? Jonathan yeah. Martin and Jen Psaki, my colleague, my friend, thank you for being here, both of you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. We have much more ahead this evening as we await a ruling that could change access to abortions nationwide. But first, what do Republicans mean exactly when they talk about woke banking? The answer is coming up next. Stay with us. Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. This weekend, the U.S. hopefully, knock on wood, narrowly avoided falling into financial crisis after the 16th largest bank in the country, Silicon Valley Bank, and another bank, Signature Bank, collapsed within days of each other. We are still not entirely out of the woods here, but already this has shifted from an economic crisis to a series of political attacks. The central debate here is how to regulate the American economy so a crisis like this doesn't happen again. But instead of focusing on policy or what actually happened here— Republicans are doing this. They were one of the most woke banks. This bank, they're so concerned with DEI and politics and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I think that really diverted from them focusing on their core mission. Remember that after 2008, the Obama administration, Eric Holder, swooped in and imposed DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion standards 
on the entire financial sector. And that's one of the main reasons our big banks are now increasingly incompetent. Silicon Valley Bank is a woke Biden bank. They were holding seminars on Lesbian Visibility Day and National Pride Month. Now, if you want to hold a Pride Month, that's fine, but you got to be able to chew gum at the same time and walk. So keep an eye on the balance sheet, guys. This is the really the first bank failure that was caused by adherence to woke beliefs and policies. What does that mean? Really, what does that mean? It is not a hypothetical question. Republicans are making their new talking point that wokeness and diversity, equity and inclusion principles are somehow what sunk Silicon Valley Bank. But no one really seems to be willing to say what they actually mean by that. How did DEI have anything to do with this? For example, this is Fry the Coop, a local Nashville style fried chicken joint in Chicago. It opened in 2017 and now they have seven locations with an eighth, which is about to open. Things seem to be going pretty well for Fry the Coop. Then on Friday, none of their workers got paid. The Coop's workers, the cooks and the managers and cashiers, many of whom make close to minimum wage, are paid every two weeks on Fridays. 227 of those employees worked like they normally do, but when Friday came, they didn't get paid because of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Now, Fry the Coop doesn't bank with Silicon Valley Bank, but its payroll company, Patriot Software, does. The CEO of that payroll company, Patriot Software, put out a statement saying he was, quote, ticked, really ticked about this banking debacle, which is probably the most polite reaction I can imagine in a situation like this. The CEO went on to explain that the Silicon Valley bank failure was preventing Patriot Software from processing the payroll of their more than 8,000 clients. And that doesn't mean 8,000 workers. That means 8,000 companies with an untold number of workers, all just not getting paid. So this wasn't woke liberals melting down a tech sector bank because they had overinvested in woke companies and woke causes. I mean, Patriot Software is a payroll company that keeps the books for a fried chicken chain in Chicago. So if it wasn't the actual clientele, the businesses that SVB invested in, what is the closest explanation we've seen as to why SVB was a woke bank? Well, we saw it in this Wall Street Journal opinion column. From Sunday, quote, Silicon Valley Bank notes that besides 91 percent of their board being independent and 45 percent women, they also have one black, one LGBTQ plus and two veterans. I'm not saying that 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have been distracted by diversity demands. Oh, okay, okay. I'm not saying if white men had been in charge of this financial collapse, it wouldn't have happened, but but you kind of are. And that the idea that, quote, one black, one LGBTQ plus and a bunch of women are the reason this bank collapsed now seems to be the new Republican Party line. Joining us now is Sheila Kohatkar, staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes about Wall Street, Silicon Valley, economics and politics. And she sits right in the intersection of all the things that are happening here, Sheila. So for people who don't understand where wokeness sits and where the collapse of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, happened, is there an intersection between wokeness and SVB's collapse? Well, to put it bluntly, the idea that there's a connection between diversity policies at this bank and the bank's collapse is complete nonsense. Anyone who says that is being totally unserious. The bank was run by capitalists, yes, capitalist businessmen who wanted to make a lot of money. They wanted the bank to grow 
very, very fast, which is never a great idea for a bank. Remember, banks are supposed to be kind of boring. Yes. You know, and they, you know, they did all sorts of things to rapidly increase the amount of money they had on deposit at the bank. They catered to Silicon Valley companies that were in the midst, frankly, of a bubble. They were getting tons of cash from investors because interest rates were very low. There was all this easy money. And they just simply did not look carefully at the risk that their company had taken on through this business model. And that is why this happened, pure and simple. It seems to me, just from a layman's perspective, that part of the reason the Republican Party wants to frame this as a woke versus not woke issue is because it avoids having to answer the more fundamental questions of what, what we do in terms of bank regulation. Is I mean, do you see it that way? And, and do you have a sense of what their party, the Republican Party's platform might be on the question of regulation and deregulation, given its past history? I think the GOP is in the middle of a bit of a kind of identity crisis, to put it mildly right now, and they're trying to figure out what their relationship is in terms of their brand with the business world, yeah. with big business, big money interests. Uh, traditionally, the Republicans favored policies that kind of drove the rewards of society towards wealthier people. Mm -hmm. uh, executives and CEOs running companies, they wanted to cut their taxes and implement sort of trickle down policies that benefited them. But now all of a sudden they've realized that can be a political liability. And President Trump and others have showed them that actually bashing business can help with certain voters. So I think a lot of this rhetoric now, which, again, is totally unserious, not engaged with the matter at hand and this tough problem we have to sort out, uh, is just pandering to those voters. And it's a sign of this identity crisis they're having about business. Well, and it's also probably to some degree the uh, the realization that so much of the grassroots base of the GOP is fired up on the issue of economic populism and has been since 2008. I mean, you hear it from Republicans who are sort of not in governance at this point, but understand the trend lines here. And 2008 gave rise to Donald Trump in a lot of ways, right? That sense that the system was rigged, that sense that you needed someone who was a truth talker, that didn't give a damn about the what the liberal elites wanted. And so at this point, you have to, you can't forsake that voter, right? That is the voter who's going to come out and pull the lever for the GOP at this point. At the same time, as you point out, the Republican Party is also the party of the Chamber of Commerce. And like squaring those two in a moment like this seems damn near impossible. I wonder what you think sort of happens here in terms of, you know, we had this push in 2018 to deregulate these kinds of banks, right? There is now Democrats, including Elizabeth Warren and Katie Porter, are saying we need to bring back that regulation. Do you think that finds a home in a bipartisan fashion in this current political climate? Well, I think the collapse of these two banks certainly gives really kind of valuable ammunition to the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. She can kind of say, look at this disaster. It could have been avoided, possibly, if we'd required this bank to be more conservative, which basically would mean the bank is required to just have more cash available if things get a little tight, you know, and not just max out their risk profile, assuming everything will be wonderful forever and plan for a rainy day. They did not do that. So I think it is a good time to try to revisit those issues. But yeah, you, you can never say for sure. It seems that a lot of Republican lawmakers, when it comes to these financial regulatory issues, they will like flip flop depending on which way the wind is blowing. We've seen this with other issues, like with antitrust reform in the tech sector, for example. Some of them are against it. Some of them are for it. They don't know what they think. I think you're going to have a little bit of that now, but it's a good moment to go in there and at least try because 
uh, you know, rolling back those regulations was clearly clearly a not idea. a great idea. Uh, what of DEI? What of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because we know Ron DeSantis has made going up against Disney and its policies. I mean, going against ESG and DEI initiatives across the country has become, uh, you know, a, a, a banner under which a lot of Republican conservatives want to march. Are, can they be effective in forcing companies to adopt more retrograde policies in terms of, you know, staffing and inclusion? Well, it's interesting because they they used to be the party of small government yes. and like laissez-faire economics and you let everyone make their money and, you know, free capitalist markets and so on. And now they're they're wanting to kind of, you know, tell companies what to do, what they can teach their own employees. You know, can they even give them diversity training? It's a little bit of a flip flop for them. But I think the reason they have all glommed onto this anti-woke agenda agenda is they feel that it's working, at least in some small sector of their voter roles, you know, and it plays well on Fox. I mean, you have to remember, they're all trying to create content and talking points for their media channels. I mean, that that seems so obvious. This is all just meant to kind of go viral on right wing social media. And as long as they think that it's working for them, I think they'll keep doing it, even though it is clearly kind of insincere and completely unhelpful in terms of actually addressing the underlying problems, which could, yes, continue to lead to bank failures. In the future, there could be a more serious one where not just the fried chicken payroll companies, yes. better, but, you know, a, you know, a major a bank employer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could really lead to problems in the future and it would be great if they would focus on actually addressing the root problem. Well, as long as there's a Democrat in the White House to clean it up, they can continue making their viral videos. But at some point, they may be called on to actually do something about um, a financial crisis. Sheila Kohatkar, it's great to meet you and have you on the program. Thanks for your time tonight. Still ahead this hour, we have the transcripts from a secret conference meeting in a major abortion case out of Texas. Stick around for that. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. For weeks now, we have been watching a federal case in Texas that has national implications for reproductive rights. If Trump-appointed Texas judge Matthew Kaczmarek rules with the plaintiffs in this case, he could undo FDA approval of Mifepristone, which has been used in safely in medication abortions for more than 20 years. Now, late last week, Judge Kaczmarek scheduled a hearing in this case, but for this week, but he tried to keep it a secret. The Washington Post caught wind of Kaczmarek's clandestine moves, specifically that he planned to keep any mention of that hearing out of the public court docket until the night before. 
He even held a secret conference meeting last Friday discussing his decision to delay public notice of his plans. All this secrecy in a federal case with national public health implications, all this secrecy is highly irregular. So when media organizations like NBC and The Washington Post discovered the judge's plans and raised concerns about a lack of transparency, Judge Kaczmarek decided yesterday to announce this week's hearing in the public docket. And today, he also made the transcript from Friday's weirdly secret conference meeting publicly available. Again, reports say this judge never wanted any of this information out until the very last minute. And now we have the transcript that reveals why. Here's the judge. So the purpose of this status conference is to announce the hearing that will be set in the pending motion for the preliminary injunction. The court will hold a hearing on plaintiff's pending motion for preliminary injunction at 9.30 a.m. Central Daylight Time on Wednesday, March 15, 2023. And because of limited security resources and staffing, I will ask the parties avoid further publicizing the date of the hearing. This is not a gag order, but just a request for courtesy, given the death threats and harassing phone calls and voicemails that this division has received. We want a fluid hearing with all parties being heard. I think less advertisement of this hearing is better. So I'm not ordering under any gag order doctrine that you are gagged. I'm just requesting it as a courtesy to the court and court staff. So we will have standard security protocols in place, but I'll just ask as a courtesy that you not further advertise or tweet any of the details of this hearing so that all parties can be heard and we don't have any unnecessary circus-like atmosphere of what should be more of an appellate-style proceeding. There will be an order setting the hearing on Tuesday. Okay, now here's the Justice Department defense attorney. Will that order be publicly available on the docket? The judge. It will. It will. But to minimize some of the unnecessary death threats and voicemails and harassment that this division has received from the start of the case, we're going to post that later in the day. So it may be after business hours, but that will be publicly filed. Despite Judge Kaczmarek's not-a-gag-order-gag order, the cat is now out of the bag. And protesters are planning to show up at the courthouse tomorrow morning, some wearing kangaroo costumes to protest what they call a kangaroo court. Others plan to dress as clowns, which is a clear reference to Kaczmarek's worry about a circus-like atmosphere. The hearing tomorrow will be public. It will be live-streamed. But you can only watch the live stream if you're physically at another federal courthouse in Texas. And also it can't be recorded, which is okay. So that's how things are playing out in the public courtroom that will decide whether access to abortion medication may be disrupted across these United States. Meanwhile, down in Galveston County, Texas, we are seeing a novel court case that could scare not only people who need abortions, but also anybody who would dare to help them. Last week, a man sued three women for helping his ex-wife get abortion medication. The man's attorneys, by the way, include a Republican state legislator and the former Texas Solicitor General who designed the state's bounty hunter-style abortion ban. Together, they claim that under Texas law, the three defendants assisted the plaintiff's ex-wife in murdering her fertilized egg by helping her get access to, wait for it, abortion medication. So the ex-husband is suing the three friends for wrongful death and conspiracy. His complaint includes text messages from his ex-wife's phone that show the woman's concerns that her pregnancy would make it difficult for her to escape her ex and that he would use it against her. This is reportedly the first lawsuit of its kind since Roe was overturned, and we will have more on this case and exactly how it is or isn't legal coming right up. Former prosecutor Tali Farhadi and Weinstein joins us next. Stay with us. 
One batch of texts in the group chat reads from Brittany, I'd be willing to do the pills for sure. She knows how to get them in Houston. Jackie, yes. Brittany, what do I need to do that? Jackie, are you sure? We can talk about it when you're back. Brittany, yeah, let's talk about it. But I read over that option too. I just thought you had to actually go to the state to get it. I read that it's similar to a miscarriage and can be done more at home generally. Jackie, yeah. Brittany, if I don't have to travel, that would make things so much easier. Amy, dude, yeah. What was just part of a conversation among a group of Texas women is now being used as evidence in a first-of-its-kind lawsuit in Texas since the passage of the state's near-total abortion ban and the overturning of Roe. The lawsuit is being brought by a man who alleges that three women helped his ex-wife get access to medication abortion. His lawsuit claims that under Texas law, a person who assists a pregnant woman in obtaining a self-managed abortion has committed the crime of murder and can be sued for wrongful death. Joining me now to discuss all this is Tali Farhadian Weinstein, former federal and state prosecutor in New York. Tali, thank you for being here to help me understand how in the world this can actually be happening. What do you, okay, legally speaking, what are the merits, if you will, of this case? Right. So I think that this case was inevitable. I think it's where the anti-choice movement has wanted to go in court for a long time, which is to actually go past any statutes that specifically prohibit abortion or make people liable for helping somebody get an abortion and just say murder is murder and a fetus is a person. And so it invokes, interestingly, just the murder statute in Texas and wrongful death in Texas. And the language of it is baby Silva was murdered and someone has to be held to account. For doing that. that this is um, the movement towards fetal personhood is something you hear about in state legislatures among far right conservative members with increasing frequency. Could this be could the end game of that this case really be that to establish fetal personhood and then get it worked through the court system for a national policy? Well, I think it's a long game. And part of it is laying the conceptual groundwork. And remember that his lawyer, one of his lawyers, is the person who wrote SB 8, the Texas law that introduced this idea that the people who help with the abortion are also on the hook for something. And we'll see how far he can get here. But I think it's not just about this suit, because one of the things that jumped out at me is how much of the language of prosecution was in here. And what they might be trying to do is to goad prosecutors into bringing this case. Right. I mean, who is really supposed to be right. holding people to account for murder? For murder? Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. You're saying we the husband is suing. But hey, hey, D.A., shouldn't you in Texas be taking this case of murder up because baby Silva was murdered? Never mind that baby Silva was a fertilized embryo exactly. a few weeks old. And if not this DA, then the next DA in Texas, then the next DA in Texas or the DA in some other state. So I, I think that that's sort of the master plan. Wow. In the meantime, you know, you read those text message chains. This is a group of women who see their friend. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're, First of all, the the sense that they are offering her support in a time of crisis is so abundantly clear. I'll read another excerpt from it. Um, Amy says, mistakes happen. You can't spiral. Hopefully this is a slap in the body that you need to remove yourself from him. Yeah, it is for sure. Can't risk something like that generally, especially with him. I just worry about your emotional state and he'll be able to snake his way into your head. Then another one says, delete all conversations from today. You don't want him looking through it. Brittany, got it. We'll do for sure. There's another friend says, and get rid of the test and wrapper, not at home. First of all, the environment in which this woman 
is fe- feeling the clear pressure to carry through with this pregnancy, despite what is clearly not a good situation for her at home. I think leaves anybody who's reading that in distress, right? She's trying to not have this pregnancy follow. She's not, she's not trying to carry this pregnancy through to term because she wants to get away from this man. Number one, the fact that he has access to these text messages um, and that these women now were being charged with, uh, they're being sued for wrongful death. The echo effects of that are profound. Indeed. And Alex, there are so many red flags here. I mean, we were just learning about the Silva family, but even just looking at what you read, I'm reminded of when SB8 first went into effect. So many advocates who work on domestic violence were worried that this could be another instrument of what we call power and control over the person in your house that you're abusing. Because you could say, you know, if you try to get an abortion, I'm going to sue your sister and your mom and your friend and whoever is in your circle of support. So the whole whole tone of it raises that. And then, you know, one of the when I was a prosecutor, one of the things that we would look for in domestic violence cases is when they take your phone. Right. So we don't know. Maybe we'll learn that he got these messages some other way. But I do worry that he was tracking her phone, that he was taking her phone out of her hands, which is, of course, her way of connecting with the outside world. Uh, So uh, I, I She talks about not wanting to lead the state. She can't have the pregnancy test. She's talking about basically just trying to keep as low a profile as she possibly can around this. Um, You know, and her friends clearly think he's a bad actor in her life. Indeed. And and we know that now they're actually divorced. So this was a relationship that ultimately did fall apart. And we're seeing some of the history of that here and how it intersects with abortion regulation in a really terrifying way. Oh, and just in terms, you talk about autonomy here. It's not just bodily autonomy. It's emotional autonomy. It's economic, financial autonomy. The things that are being infringed upon in Texas, when you, when it, you talk about women in the, under the auspices of pregnancy, it is the handmaid's tale. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's she's talking about taking a day off of work, and you know, in order to manage this abortion, it really kind of gives you a window into what the abortion pill, as opposed to a surgical abortion, really means in the lives of women who are in dire straits. Such an important right. point as we await a cataclysmic uh, decision in that case, down with Judge Kazmarek and Amarillo. Tally Farhadi and Weinstein, it is, I'm sorry that it is a joy to talk to you uh, about really distressing things. Uh, Thank you for your time and wisdom as always. We'll be right back. We have one last story before we go tonight. America's most, let's say, fascinating freshman congressman has officially filed papers with the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, indicating that he intends to run for re-election in 2024. That, of course, is embattled, prolific liar, New York Republican and freshman congressman George Santos, who is embroiled in a list of scandals that is so long that listing every single one would take more time than we have in this program. The Republican congressman is also reportedly being scrutinized by a brigade of law enforcement agencies, including prosecutors from the local, state, federal and even international level, not to mention an ethics investigation by his own colleagues in Congress. Against that backdrop... George Santos responded to a deadline set by the FEC to indicate whether or not he is inclined to run in 2024. And today he is indicating that, yes, he plans to run for re-election. CNN points out that Santos indicated in the filing that he does not expect to use his own funds for his re-election, which is significant because he's facing campaign finance scrutiny for a mysterious 
$750,000 loan he lent his 2022 campaign. Today's filing with the FEC does not 100% mean that George Santos is running for re-election. It is not an official declaration, but it sure is a very strong indication. In a surprise move last week, the freshman congressman offered to co-sponsor a Republican bill literally aimed at making sure people like George Santos, congressmen, cannot profit off of stuff they made up if they have been convicted of certain crimes. The bill is titled, and I quote, the No Fortune for Fraud Act. One of the Republican co-sponsors of that bill notes on his website that the bill is, quote, inspired by George Santos. The generous offer to have Santos co-sponsor that bill was denied. But the controversies, they just keep finding George Santos. Last week, we learned of the latest one, which accuses him of being involved in a 2017 credit card fraud scam. Congressman Santos has vehemently denied those allegations. That is the show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. Now it's time for the last word with Lawrence O'Donnell. Good evening, Lawrence. Good evening, Lawrence. So I got my earpiece in just in time to hear you say the word embroiled. And I knew <laughs> the words you George did. Santos <laughs> were going to be What's coming, coming up, up next. <laughs> yeah, I, embroiled, I, I knew where I was. Liar. Controversy yeah. investigation. I mean, there's another person that we could be talking about, too. But right. but George Santos, Lawrence, if you missed it because your earpiece wasn't in, looks like he's running again in 2024. Yeah. So we will be saying the word embroiled well, he, for some more time. He, 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 he certainly at least wants to be able to raise money, uh, which is <laughs> yes. what that filing is about. And I want to meet I just want to meet whoever contributes to the yes. Santos campaign. In fact, open invitation on this program. If you contribute to the Santos campaign <laughs> uh, anytime after today, open please call. give us a call. Open we would call. Love 1-800 last <laughs> yeah, word. Yeah. Come, come right on. Come right on. Can't wait. Have Thank a great you, show, Alex. Lawrence. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.